0: You're in this box because people see that repeated behavior or that repeated response. And wouldn't it be great if there was a different response or a different behavior that's appropriate to the situation, therefore people won't necessarily put you in that labeled box, but will know that there's gonna be many different behaviors that you can and you're capable of exhibiting.
1: Hey, it's David, and you're listening to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul your source for practical leadership inspiration, tools, and strategies you can use to achieve transformational results without sacrificing your humanity or your mind in the process. Hey, welcome to the show today. Uh, Another episode here in season 13, over 200 episodes. And thank you for making us one of the top leadership podcasts in the world. And uh, again, cannot thank you enough for those reviews, the shares. And if you haven't already got on your favorite podcast app uh, whoever's supplying where you're listening make sure and leave a review uh, you're going to enjoy today's guests i know that uh, i have uh, uh, already benefited from reading his book and i am fascinated to see where the converse- conversation takes us today our guest name today is carl hebenstreit he's a phd a certified executive coach leadership and organization development consultant author and international speaker His 25-plus year career spans the areas of human resources and organizational development in biotechnology, clinical diagnostics, life sciences, healthcare, pharmaceuticals, telecom, professional services, high tech, and real estate services industries. I couldn't even get through all that in one breath, Carl. All right. (laughs) That's all good. Breathing is good. Breathing is good for us. Well, You've got a PhD in organizational psychology, and what brings you to the show today is that you are the author of a book called The How and Why taking care of business with the Enneagram. And it's in its second edition. So we're so glad to have you here, Carl. Welcome to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. Thank you,
0: David. This is a really important cause, especially for me, because I really do think that your podcast is so important about really aligning your values to the work that you're doing. So leadership without losing your soul is a critical component of that.
1: Ah, uh, welcome. I'm glad that you're here, and yeah, we uh, and and your uh, your work and your book around the Enneagram is so aligned and focused on being a human centered leader and all that that can mean. So I'm eager to get into it. But before we do, we have to ask you if you could take us back to your earliest memory of yourself as a leader, however far back that goes for you.
0: So <laughs> okay, uh, so there was this one time. Uh, this was in Greece. I was raised in Greece. Uh, my name would not reveal that at all. But I'm actually more Greek than I am German. And I was going to a school where, uh, for some strange reason, it was Charlie, uh, Willy Wonka, and the and the Chocolate Factory. So the the so Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, I think it was right. Yeah. yeah. And for some strange reason, we were reading it. So this was I was young. This was really really young, and th- for some strange reason. The teacher made up some story that the chocolate bar that I had in my lunch was the actual winning chocolate bar that had the the, the winner of, of being going to the chocolate factory. but the the version of the winning that would happen was that I would be able to lead the class in going to lunch and, and and do that kind of thing. So I think that was the earliest memory that I have of some sort of leadership where it was just bestowed upon me just by eating chocolate bar.
1: <laughs> yes. Uh, Mm -hmm. you know what I, I gotta say, I don't think, and I have read a lot of leadership books and I don't think eating a chocolate bar has ever come up as a leadership technique. Maybe
0: that's the secret, the secret sauce, (laughs) right? (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh, you got the golden ticket. All right. So you ate chocolate. Right. And, and then in those roles, you were leading by example. You're at the front of the line guiding people down, exactly. you know, your classmates and so it's forth. Like going so that's out for the, lunch, coming back in
0: for lunch, that kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yes.
1: yeah. And so clearly yeah, I mean, you must have done a good job, set a good, uh, you were a good <laughs> role model or you couldn't have held on to the job very long, no matter how much chocolate you ate.
0: It's true. I think someone else must have gotten the job the next day, though. If <laughs> if we really wanted to go to a more business and practical application of leadership, I would think that it it was when I was get without any prior leadership experience at all. Um, and T felt confident enough in me to give me a whole staff of twenty people that were sprinkled all around the country, mm. and um, there was a, it was a. Big moment for AT&T, that was when they did a voluntary retirement incentive package and so many people volunteered to retire and created so many openings and so many uh, vacancies. And so it was the merger of four different roles together. And I was moved across the country from New Jersey to California to lead the office in California, as well as the people in Chicago, the people in Southern California, in Missouri, in Texas, in Texas. And it was some a brand new thing for me, and that was uh, a great, a great honor uh, to have the confidence from the leadership team in the home office in New Jersey of of AT&T that upon me. And uh, Carl,
1: that had to be a steep learning curve too. And I'm curious, as you think back on that experience, like what was one challenge that you might remember from, from back then, from that first role that uh, you're given responsibility for 20 people. So I think part of the biggest challenge was
0: being one of the youngest people there. So I had a lot of people who were more experienced in the workforce and spent more time in the workforce. Notice I'm not saying older, um, but they were older. (laughs) So being younger than they were. And some of those people had actually applied for my job. Mm. So that was a very interesting challenge from the standpoint of my Personal Enneagram type is I want to be liked by others and having the realization that there are people here that may not like me because I took the job away or the opportunity away from them and they may think that they have more experience or could do the job better, but really understanding where each person was in their career in their aspirations, because some people aspired for other roles and other people were like, Nope, this is the role I want. So just having that realization was a critical component in helping me to understand what they needed and how I could be a better leader for them.
1: Mm, powerful. All right. Well, that gets us. You just mentioned your, one of your type or one of that characteristics of your Enneagram type. So let's step back. So the name of the book is the how and why taking care of business with the Enneagram. Uh, so for those unfamiliar, and I'm sure that we have some listeners they maybe they've heard of DISC or Myers-Briggs, or maybe they've heard the word Enneagram floating out there. What exactly is the Enneagram? So let's start at the treetop level, and then we'll dive yeah. in.
0: So the Enneagram is an ancient system that was originally used for spiritual development. And I say ancient because you can actually see it in all different cultures all around, all around the world. The symbol itself is a Sufi symbol and you can actually see the enneagram play out in the the um odyssey the odyssey is the enneagram all nine worlds all nine types visited in order so it's it's been around for a long time it hasn't really been used in business until maybe the i would say 1970s 1980s it was very mystical up until the 70s when it was only taught to people verbally and then We started uh, getting the word out (laughs) in print when um, Helen Palmer actually wrote a book about the Enneagram and got people interested in it that way. So the, the actual practical applications for people's own development, not necessarily spiritual development, started around then. And then we started seeing the applications in business being probably in the 80s. And it was primarily used for executive development, leadership development, and maybe even team building. But now we're seeing that the system itself can be used for a variety of different organization development interventions to help organizations meet the challenges that they're facing. So it really is one model that can apply to every single type of challenge.
1: So it's a a model, it's a system, Mm Give us a little bit more about, and you mentioned there are nine, there are these nine types or dimensions, and I'm going to use lots of different language and I'm going to rely on you to make sure we're speaking precisely and accurately about such things. But uh, So what exactly is it in terms of these nine things and and how do we go about making use of that in all the different realms that you're talking about? And we'll get into some of the specifics.
0: Absolutely. So the Enneagram is a system, as you say. Some people call it a personality typing system and it is part of your personality. Some people think that it defines them, or it is I am a one, I am a two, I am a three, or I am whatever number. And the reality is we are all. All those numbers are parts and components of each one of us. But the ultimate thing is there is one core driver. So it's the identification of this one core motivator that has been motivating us for our entire lives. And will continue to motivate us for entire lives. And the further realization that we just don't have to be dependent on that one core motivator, one core driver. There are eight other drivers that are also out there, eight other lenses, eight other perspectives, eight other types, again, whatever dimensions, whatever you want to put word you wanna put to it that can help us to fully understand the world. Because if we're only relying on that one ninth sliver, we're only seeing 40 degrees of the full 360 degree picture. And ultimately the goal is to understand where we're coming from and also understand and integrate the other eight styles or types or or dimensions or perspectives or lenses. And that's going to help us to be better human beings, have more soul in our leadership because we'll be better able to understand where other people are coming from. Because guess what? Everyone else doesn't see the world through that same lens. Or same perspective that we do. They're going to be one of those nine lenses, and it's probably going to be a different one than
1: yours. And you know, there are so many uh, of these ways of looking at the different dimensions of human personality, behavior, style, whatever we're going to call these things what is the strength of the enneagram why is it that you are as passionate as you are that you would write a book with all of it and listen i gotta tell you carl's done a ton of research and really dove deep into this so he knows what he's talking about but why the passion why the commitment to this particular model Uh, there are so many what do you what what is it that you're fond about or what works for you in this one
0: there is one key differentiator to the enneagram that is its superpower over every other system every other model that's out there. So all the other models including the ones you listed Myers-Briggs and DISC and StrengthsFinder and and Hogan and Leadership Circle and and all the other ones that are out there uh, Thomas Kilman they're all specific to behaviors. They are describing behaviors. So they are going to predict which way you're going to behave in a certain situation. And this is observable behavior. And it helps. I mean that definitely helps. It's it's a self-awareness raising instrument any of those are self awareness raising instruments what we don't know is the reason behind those behaviors and that's what the enneagram does the enneagram helps to identify what is that driver what is the reason what is the the, the core motivation behind the behavior that we're seeing so they are related all those systems are related there are overlaps you can definitely see some correlations they're not nothing is a 1.0 correlation but you will see that knowing someone's core driver will help you understand them better not just knowing what behavior to expect because okay. you want to know why they're why they're exemplifying that behavior why that that behavior is coming out
1: right and and you know just thinking about different kinds of behaviors you know the same behavior can have three or four or five different motivations behind exactly. it exactly And uh, how often do we respond based on what our interpretation of that behavior for us would be when that isn't necessarily the case for them at all? Okay,
0: exactly. So so that's the golden rule that we've always been touted with—the golden rule about treating others the way you want to be treated. So you understand how you want to be treated. Hopefully, everyone understands how they want to be treated, or they have an instrument that helps them understand through self-awareness why they, you know, what that treatment is that they they want. And then understanding that other people may want to be treated differently is the next step, that's the empathy building, the the emotional intelligence building, right? So understanding that there are eight other ways or or reasons why people may wanna be treated in a different way and what those might be and how those might differ from the way that you wanna be treated. So how can we adopt that or at least pay attention to that so that we're not ostracizing people or or pushing their hot buttons inadvertently or even on purpose? so that we can have the best interpersonal relationships we have we can have with them and also the best uh, results that we can get from them
1: yeah and you know you've seen uh, just thinking about taking a a fairly recent issue for so many leaders is um for those that during the pandemic whose workforce or teams ended up working from home now we've got okay what happens next and all of the arguments and conversations and angst and hair pulling and all the rest that's going on around whether it should be remote back in person hybrid whatnot and so many times people are just talking past each other based on their own motivators right exactly
0: what their situation is what their understanding of the situation is and not really empathizing with other people's situations yeah or meets,
1: you know. all right well let's uh, start getting to a little bit more detail but before we do we have to talk about one of the big objections and you address it in your book and you actually actually you you at length discuss don't do this, <laughs> which yeah. is uh, labeling and how we shouldn't wow. use uh, these kinds of tools, um, and specifically the Enneagram so let's that's generally what it is before we dive into some of the specifics. Yeah, how to avoid some of the pitfalls of tools like this. Yeah. So a lot of people do object to any type of classification
0: system that puts them in a box. They're afraid of being put in a box and then being treated as if they are that thing, that object, that label, and only that that is contained within that box. Mm-hmm. And that is what we are trying to avoid. That's what we're trying to break down. We are trying to to show people that, guess what, regardless of whatever you do, whether you take an assessment or not, People have already put you in a box. They already have a judgment on you. They, they're they they're saying, oh, this person is so perfectionistic. Oh, this person is so, you know, whatever, whatever, the, emotional. This person is so uh, distant, whatever it is. They've already come up with the category for you and they're treating you according to that category. The purpose of this and any type of assessment instrument is to identify the box that you've been put in, that you are in already. We're not putting you in a box, you're already in it and to help you break out of it, to understand that you're in this box because people see that repeated behavior or that repeated response. And wouldn't it be great if there was a different response or a different behavior that's appropriate to the situation? Therefore, people won't necessarily put you in that labeled box, but will know that there's gonna be many different behaviors that you can and you're capable of exhibiting and and doing in different situations. The other thing which is very related to what you're talking about is that we should not be going around putting people in boxes. We should not be predicting or, or assuming someone's Enneagram type or any other personality assessment type based on what we see because we don't know what's really going on. We have no idea what's really going on for the person um, inside of them, and what's re- the true driver? We, we can't read minds. Most of us can't read minds. And, I can't.
1: Um, I say I'm telepathetic. There we go.
0: I, I'll join you in that club. That's a support group. <laughs> so it's important to not go around. And teachers, especially teachers of the Enneagram, are discouraged from telling a, a student a person's type, right? That it's for the person to come up with on their own. Because only they truly know what's going on inside their, their minds and hearts and bodies.
1: On that note, so there are a variety of uh, assessments, surveys that you can take that will help you have an indication of your type. I've also seen it um, come across that whatever that survey instrument tells you, also go to the descriptions and really read through and, and see what matches for you. Yes. Um, in terms of your self-knowledge, self-awareness.
0: Absolutely. And that's, that's exactly what you should be doing. Whatever an instrument tells you isn't law. It's not something that you should consider to be truth. It's up to you. It's up to each individual to decide whether the assessment is correct. Even with Myers-Briggs, when we were talking about Myers-Briggs earlier, that instrument is valid. What it is, I think what it, it was 99% valid to get three out of your four letters correctly. So ultimately it's up to you to decide which letter it got wrong. But
1: <laughs> <And laughs> right? even then there's <laughs> like yeah, even then there's like sub uh, shading within the letters and there are all that so yeah. Exactly, and exactly. And change over time and some of those preferences. Exactly, right? Like and
0: you, you know, as you get older you flip and and you know, all the different shadow stuff comes through and all that. But again, it's up to the individual to decide their type. Okay. The test can help guide you in that direction. It can give you uh, some, something to consider and say, this is probably your type, but guess what? There's There are many different factors to consider. Your subtype, your wings, your arrows, how you go under stress, how you are under comfort, and all these different things. Oh, it could be a cultural overlay. It could be a parental or guardian overlay. It could be all these different things that are affecting your perception of yourself and how you may have come
1: out on that assessment. All right, we're talking with Carl Hebenstreit, the author of The How and Why, Taking Care of Business with the Enneagram. And uh, Carl, I'm gonna use myself as a guinea pig here uh, for the sake of our audience. Uh, uh, You know, you were just mentioning about, we need to be, we're the arbiter, so we use the assessments, use the instruments to help us, guide us. And then there are a lot of variables and things. And then as we're reading through and looking at things, um, to really feel what matches what's actually happening for us and how we're motivated and thinking and so forth. Um, one of the struggles I have had with the Enneagram is the m- majority of the time the instruments tell me I am I, I have a, a type one uh, with a a wing two, which you will you can get into what all that means. But often as I read through, I'm like, yep, that all makes sense. And then there's this five hanging out there that. Sometimes mm-hmm. I'm like, "Oh, yeah, but there's parts of that too that oh, really, yeah. and how does that work? You know do, are, so are, with these oh, nine yeah. types, you said we're all some element of all of them. Like how do they interplay that way, or how does that work?
0: that So we have all nine types within us, and we have automatic connectivity to some types more strongly than others because there are lines that attach each type to one of two. Um, other types as well. So for example, you have, uh, I'll use, use an example. If you, if you lead with type one or you affiliate with type one, you're going to have an automatic connection to seven. There's going to be a line that connects you to seven and there's going to be a line that connects you to four. So those two lines are automatic and you will have some of that. You'll exemplify some of that. So ones type ones, when they're able to quiet their inner critic down enough type ones, for those that may not be familiar with it, are the perfectionists or reformers or um, strict perfectionists. And they, their superpower is their ability to, to discern differences between different things and make decisions based on their very high ethics and values and their value structure. So they have these values that are really, really important to them. They assess everything through that lens of those values, and they can differentiate between different things, what's better, what's worse, what's the right thing to do in this situation, always about what's the right thing to do. When they can quiet that internal critic, that very loud internal critic that's in their head, that's always pointing out what's right and what's wrong, what needs to be fixed, they can then go to that line of seven, that connectivity to seven, and have some playtime and be much more fun, and a and, uh, sense of humor comes out, they're they're fun-loving, and so they, they let their hair down. They, they just have more fun, they're more open to the fun, and that normally is not their default. And there's the line connectivity to four is their uh, stress or stretch point, which is whatever is at our stress point is what stresses us out. So that's our hot button. And that's also how we behave under stress. So the type one is usually very much comported, very much in, in control of their emotions, their actions, their the way that they're presenting themselves, very much in control of that according to whatever rules or values or morals or ethics or whatever is the right thing to be presented like in that situation. What they don't like is the the fluctuation or the unpredictability of emotionality. And so the, the drama or the emotionality and the feelings that are so prevalent in the strengths of the four, the superpowers of the four can make the one veer course, right, go off course a little bit. And guess what, under stress, they can become a little bit more dramatic themselves. So that's the one of the secrets to the whole system of the Enneagram, that you do have the connectivity to those extra points. Now you mentioned five. So in addition to your core type, your core type resides in one of three, core centers of structure. So the type one resides along with the eight and the nine in the body center or the gut center or the action center. So eight nines and ones are the gut, body, or action center. Five is not part of that. Five is a thinking style. Five, six, and seven, those three numbers, those three types are part of the thinking center. And so if you have such an attachment to five, if you like five, if you can see yourself with five, that may be your thinking style. Mm -hmm. So the five takes on accessing their, their thoughts their their brain through an objective analysis of what's going on so they're taking in all this this varied stuff that's coming in from all over the place all this 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 data and making it make sense creating models and sense making frameworks that will help make all that that chaos make sense so the 6 does that in a different way the 6 looks at worst case scenario planning and comes up with oh i need to make sure that i'm safe secure and comfortable by you know by planning for the worst possible case scenario that's going to happen so not necessarily as objective as the 5. And the 7, which you automatically have aligned to, which may not necessarily be your thought style, but it's your still your your um your access to your your comfort, your release is more about positivity and options and opportunities and seeing the world through rose-colored lenses as opposed to the 6s which are going to be the worst case scenario planners. So there are three different ways of thinking or accessing your brain and your brain is, is processing the world through those different lenses. Uh-huh. So your affinity for five, it, as opposed to type one as being a core could still work because one is how you take action. Five is maybe how you think about it. Got it. And so then we're missing the two, three, and four, which I was just
1: going to go. Yes. Take us yes. over there. Go, go right so ahead. The
0: two threes and fours are the heart centers. So we all access our feelings, our hearts, through one of these lenses as well. It may be our core type, it may not be a core type. It could just be, a, it could be an, an arrow, it could be a wing. So arrows are those direct lines that we talked about, like for the one, it's the seven and the four. But for wings, it's what's next to you. For again, we're gonna use the type one as the example. You mentioned you're a wing two. You also have a, a nine wing because the nine is counterclockwise connected to you and the, and the two is clockwise connected to the type one. So the twos, threes, and fours are the way that we access our hearts. So we can either access our heart through the type two, which is the helper or giver, and always looking outside to other people's needs and and putting down the the person's own needs in favor of meeting the other person's needs, right? So that's the two, the three is much more goal oriented and uh, looking at what is the goal that needs to be accomplished in this situation and, really doing a back and forth between their own uh, needs and feelings and in really pushing them down and suppressing them in favor of meeting whatever the goal is. And the four that we talked about earlier is another way of accessing the heart, which is very much about feelings, emotions, and empathy. And the fours wanna be seen as unique, creative, special, different. And they always feel different because they feel like they're feeling everyone else's feelings in addition to their own. So it's a very much taking in all the other feelings that are existing in the world, not only their own, but other people's feelings as well. So there are three different ways of accessing the heart, three different ways of accessing the mind or brain, and three different ways of taking action. And so even if you don't have one of those natural connections as either a wing or an arrow from your main or core type, you still do have access to a different way to access your your the other two uh centers that you're not that are not part of your core.
1: So before we go into some of that let's uh go around i think as we were getting through so we've got the ways of taking action we talked about the one which was because it was mine but the 8 and the 9 uh, mm-hmm. you mentioned those as well. So uh, yeah. maybe i missed that but what were those Yes. You're
0: there? you're right. You didn't miss them. I didn't say them. <laughs> So the eight and the nine and the one are the three different components of the center of uh, structure. That's the body center or the action center. And we said the one takes action for doing whatever the right thing to do is in that situation. The eight takes immediate action uh, to what needs to be done through the lens of execution. So they get things done through others as well. So it's really incorporating others, involving others, delegating to others. So that's, uh, that's an immediate action. Nine is less immediate and more of, I want to make sure I don't change the status quo too much. I want to make sure that uh, peace and equilibrium are maintained. So there's a different way of taking
1: action. Excellent. Carl, you've been walking us through the different types that the Enneagram defines. And so as listeners are listening, I'm sure they're starting to go, oh, well, that sounds like I, yeah, I might recognize, I might identify with that. So let's get into how managers and leaders um, as we have this awareness that these types exist excuse me that these types exist and we start to recognize ourselves how do we start to use that knowledge with our team members given like you said earlier we don't actually know their style and we shouldn't be trying to guess because all we see is behavior we don't see the inside exactly
0: So the first part is understanding ourselves. So finding out where we are, so what's motivating us, and then finding out what's motivating the rest of our team members. For a leader, it's going to be really important to identify what's important for each of our different direct reports. So having conversations with them, having them take an assessment, doing a team building workshop where they can land on their core type is going to be really critical for that. So then they can understand how different members of their teams Are going to be responsive to different styles of leadership and are going to want different things. Right now, we are living in an environment and and, and a world where we are really only, I would say, rewarding and motivating and engaging a subset of a small subset of our employee population because we have policies, we have rewards and recognition structures that are really geared towards our threes, our sevens, and our
1: eights. Can you talk a little bit more about that, about how those systems tend to reinforce for those types?
0: Yeah. So we have certain values and certain behaviors and certain ideals that we celebrate more than others. And all we have to do is look to to our leaders, to the leaders of our organizations, to who gets promoted and see that within an organization, it's going to be pretty much a reflection of the culture of the organization and who is rewarded according to that? So if we continue to hire and only promote people who have that one same mindset or perspective or style, we are going to be not paying attention to the diversity of perspective. And we're going to lose out on that diversity of perspective of all the other styles. So we are currently really focusing on three sevens sevens, and eights in most organizations because they make their needs known. They're very explicit and very assertive about making their needs known. They're mm-hmm. more extroverted about making their needs known. So they're very goal oriented. They, they respond to that, setting goals, achieving goals, receiving recognition for getting those goals met. So the threes are, that's, that's the core of the type three. Um, the sevens tend to be more visionary and create excitement and charismatic. So very big picture. So we tend to put them in leadership positions as well. You see, you tend to see sevens being promoted into leader positions as well. And the eights get things done through others. So we tend to see them getting rewarded for for that type of behavior. And ultimately, we're missing out on the insights of the types one, the twos, the fours. The fours are nearly extinct in organizations, in for-profit organizations. You'll only really find them in nonprofits and the arts. The fives and sixes and um and the nines that you rarely see them in the numbers that we see the threes and sevens and eights
1: in in leadership roles. So Carl, can you help us understand what's missing? What is the consequence of us missing out on those different elements that aren't the the ones that are dominant in our, some of our workplace cultures when that's happening?
0: So we're missing out on inclusion of diverse perspectives. So ultimately, the enneagram helps to identify diverse perspectives which are going to mirror what is in the entire world and that world is going to have your customers your stakeholders your the people that you're in business for right that you're providing a service or a product or, or whatever you're you're there to do for them so if you're missing out on insights and perspectives from your your key stakeholders and your key customers, and you're only making a product that's appealing to certain subset of that population, you're missing out. And you're also missing out on creating a product that is fully 100% amazing, right? Because you're only focusing on certain components of it and you're missing out on okay, if you look at it, what does the one bring to the table? The one brings that quality perspective, that sense of like, we need to make this right. We need to do the right thing and make it right. So customer service quality, product quality, there's a focus on quality. The type two brings the stakeholder relations. Like what's going on? What do our stakeholders need? Do we know what every single one of our stakeholders needs out there? The fours are going to be very unique uh, and, and looking at the aesthetic of it. So, you know, is our service or a product aesthetically pleasing to? so that customers are going to want that over something else or what our, our, our competitors produce. The fives are going to be looking at the objective objectivity of the situation. They're going to be looking at, okay, what evidence do we have? What makes sense? What's logical? What's the logical next step? How should we proceed? What, what, what does the past say? How can we predict things based on the past? The sixes, when we include them, because a lot of times we don't include the six perspective because it's seen as the naysayer, and we really the that perspective down in organizations, but the sixes are gonna help us be more successful because they're gonna help us plan for contingencies that we didn't think about if we're only thinking about positive outlooks and, and positive promotion. And okay. nines are gonna look at the whole system, the system perspective. How does everything fit together? How does this fit within what we're doing, within our, our, our environment, within our industry, within what's going on in, in the world? So we really downplay those types of perspectives more than the others, and that's what we're missing out on. And if we had more of those in every single thing that we did, in decisions that we made, in strategic planning, in in everything that we do that's related to business, we would have ideal products. We would have ideal relationships with our customers. We would just have better relationships with each other within the organization, so it's it's really thwarting our efforts by by excluding those perspectives.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and I, the employee experience that you're getting us. So the 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 recognition on the the um, of the impact on service and product development pretty clear. Uh, you have a whole section where you outline how how the different types can get involved in strategy and and strategic mm-hmm. thinking and strategic planning and given some of what you just said, how all those connections are made. I'm I'm wondering on the the employee experience side, because there are such different motivators. Right. um, And the way that you just described how the kind of the classic US business culture recognizes and rewards those uh, three sevens and eights, you said, Mm -hmm. I had that right? Yeah. yes the three sevens and eights and and creates cultures in which okay that's what it is to fit in here and you know if you're not going to speak up for your needs well you better learn <laughs> you know that great right. yeah uh, or don't complain <laughs> Or don't complain, right <laughs> right and so we're missing out on that if we're not being as inclusive as we can in all of the different looking at all the different ways that people are motivated and show up so how do we go about if i'm a leader and i'm i'm thinking okay I don't want to make that same mistake. And I want to be inclusive in this sense and get the full benefit of the full range of human motivation experience that you just described. Mm -hmm. What are ways that I can start to go about that practically? Because uh, my, my, my analytic brain is kicking in going, huh? Okay. How do I craft a workplace that works for everybody when everybody's so different? Yeah. (laughs)
0: So ideally, the values that the organization has will appeal to all nine types. All nine types will find something that they want to to join this organization because it it meets their needs as well. So starting off with, with a value structure that's very inclusive. Then understanding where each person's coming from, right? What are their needs, their individual needs? And if we have a reward structure that gives... I'm just going to pick on vacation time, Uh, X amount of days, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, whatever it is. But the person may not value that as much as either more money or more time off or a stipend to go to school to complete another degree or, or learn more technical expertise in a certain area, do a deeper dive there or go to a conference so there if we find ways that are equitable across the board that would be the same as if you gave this person an you know x thousand dollars promotion or or an extra week of vacation or whatever it is it, it would be almost like a personalized customized plan that is still worth the same amount of money but people are using it to meet their needs So that would be an ideal, one way of of creating some ideal, uh, work rules and processes and policies that would attract and retain and engage and motivate every single type. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: But it really comes down to the leader understanding what each one of their direct reports and everyone in the company needs. And that's the relationship between the leader and those direct reports.
1: And so depending on your your role in an organization, obviously your engagement with these things can differ, but let's just take a, an immediate supervisor for a moment. I think around page uh, 40 or 42 in your book, you uh, you mentioned uh, earlier in our discussion about having the conversations, getting to know people, talking with them. And you have a great list of questions for those stay interviews and the kinds of questions that we can be engaging with Uh uh, there, it's a fantastic list. I just give yeah, a few. Yeah, Beverly Kay, by
0: the way, is the originator or one of the key originators or propagators of the Stay interview. So I just want to do a shout out to her.
1: All right. Shout out Bev Kay. Uh, Bev Kay is a friend of ours and uh, she's been on the show uh, before and just saw her two weeks ago. Uh, so yes, for everyone listening, if you haven't listened to to Bev, uh, definitely give Bev a shout out for the, the Stay interview and her great, uh, great resource. Love them or lose them. So um some of these questions that you recommend what do you like about your work what keeps you here what makes for a great day at work what's something new you'd like to learn or do this year Yeah uh what else let's going just down the list what kind of recognition is meaningful to you that's one of my favorites public private monetary other right. uh you know what, and it's fascinating with the answers that you'll get to that question one time I asked that question of some of my team and individually and uh one of them said you know um cross training. I want to learn other things. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily want to go do them, but I want to learn them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like really? Okay. We can do that. Uh, somebody yeah. else. And, said and you never have
0: thought that, right. And you would have thought, I just need to spend more money on people. I need to give them more, you know, money, more raises, more promotions, more whatever. And that may not be what, what's motivating to them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And then the, the last list, uh, last item on this list of questions that I thought just so valuable. And I wanted to Um, Have you walk us through this one a little bit. Uh, When we frustrate each other or come into conflict with one another, how shall we best resolve it? Yes. Such an important topic because of all of the sandpaper that human beings are to one another. So Mm -hmm. let's explore this one in a little bit of depth, if you'd be willing to to walk us through some of the different answers we might get, some of the different ways we can approach our conflicts with one another. Yeah.
0: So there are some, some types that are more conflict tolerant (laughs) that I would say than others and uh, just just right you know obviously the the big stereotype would be the type eight would but the the big secret there is that the eights don't like conflict they're not like conflict lovers they just see conflict as a way of getting to truth which is something they're always after they're always looking for the truth and so conflict is just a tool like debate, like debating to get to the truth. They don't care what the truth is. They want to know what the truth is. Just tell them the truth, whatever it is. It could be positive. It could be negative. It can be be contradicting what they currently think. But as long as they can know what the truth is, they can work with it, right? And resolve it. So the type eights are going to have a different way of wanting to resolve conflict and deal with conflict than most of the other styles. But it's going to be really interesting to to create that alliance or or contract or relationship building where you understand that about each other. And some people will say, let me know that there's something going on that we're not in agreement with. Let me think about it and let's get back together again. Some people will say, let's hash it out right in the moment. Uh, It's gonna be different depending on the interaction of the two different styles and the people and their past and history. So Mm -hmm. it's gonna be individual relationships, contracts with each person to define that. And I think another big thing is just like feedback, feedback can be conflict creating or angst creating or anxiety creating. And if it's just normalized, if it's not made to be such a big deal and people are asked in advance, well, how will we do feedback so that it's not this event that scares people? or causes anxiety. So it's just a normal part of our business operating process. So how can we minimize those anxieties around that and take into consideration what each person needs and make sure that we're meeting that?
1: Yeah. Gosh, there's just so many different applications. And some of this I think is Uh, my mind is going about 13 different directions right now so i'll just start with an example and then where some of the takeaways that i'm getting from our conversation here um i'm remembering earlier in my career uh early in my career i was having a conversation with a a really top performer i think he's a chief operating officer today he's done a, a great job in his career and back then he was really stressing about a particular topic and i said you know well, how about we treat this as an experiment? You can mm-hmm. try this and it's gonna be okay and you see what you learn and then yeah. uh, and then you'll try this. And I was trying to take pressure off of him. right? And the word experiment felt so horrible to him. For me, an experiment means no consequences. Let's see what we learned. And for him, right. it was like, you don't experiment with people. What is this, a mad scientist like? <laughs> I lost him at hello when I said the word experiment. Yes. Uh, and, and and John, if you're listening, I, I learned, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, but uh, that was many years ago. But, uh, you know, those kinds of things, well, we're never going to get it all right. We're never going to have all of, we're never going to know it all to begin with. This is something we have to have the awareness of these differences, learn and really listen as we're going through it. Uh, and, and. You know, those contracts, those individual contracts that you're talking about, it's not that we can just craft all that from the beginning, is it?
0: No, and you usually we don't. Uh so I I stress the importance of reboot meetings, really, because what there's a great Maya Angelou quote that you do what you you do your best until you know better, and then when you know better, you do better. Mm -hmm. So you've created relationships with people based on what you knew, what you thought you knew. And now when you know better and you know them better, wouldn't it be great to just reboot that relationship and say, I now know so much more about you. Let's come up with different ways of, of interacting, of giving each other feedback, of making sure that we work through conflict together so that we're not pushing each other's hot buttons and that we can treat each other with respect and dignity that we both deserve.
1: And just the willingness to be on that learning journey and seeking to, to know better so we can do
0: better. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. That, that, that readiness is key. People need to be ready to do that. If they're closed and not ready to do that because they think that they know best and that their way is best, we're not going to get anywhere with them.
1: Hmm. All right. Talking with Carl Hebenstreit, the author of The How and Why, Taking Care of Business with the Enneagram. And uh Carl, I've got couple more questions. I definitely, there's so much more to explore here. And I know we're only going to be able to continue scratching the surface. Definitely encourage people to get this book, learn more about the Enneagram and all of the different business and leadership applications. Um, You have a number of resources. You also have a children's book that, that makes this incredibly accessible for everybody. Yes. What is that about? Let's tell us about the children's book and then tell us where should we find you, connect with you? What are the best ways to uh, to make you a part of our life, whether it's digital or otherwise. Thank
0: you for, for bringing that up. Yeah, so the children's book is actually an outgrowth of one of the chapters in the book about decision-making. And the decision-making slash empowerment, I kind of put them together, uh, chapter is it came out of an actual real-life work application when I worked at a company named BioRad. And we were trying to figure out how do we empower our workers? How do we empower our employees? To in in a culture that was not necessarily seen as it was okay to take risks. So we actually used the Enneagram to help the leadership in the R&D group there to come up with some, some guidelines, some bumper guards that really gave the employees a chance to say, well, let me ask these nine questions. And if I ask these nine questions, one for each Enneagram type, right? And it's it's related to making a decision, the best decision possible. So if they answered each of these nine questions, they will have taken into consideration all the nine key factors that would be necessary for any decision. And if they went forward and did it, then it, whatever the consequence was, if it worked, that's fantastic. If it didn't work, it's okay. They went through that due diligence and the leadership would have their back there would be no negative repercussions to that. Mm. So that same concept I took to, wouldn't it be great if we knew this concept, this system from a very young age, and we adopted that and internalized it and understood that there's these nine different types within us so that even if we don't have high access to one of those energies or, or types or passions or anything that along those lines, we could still access it and integrate it. We could we could find out about it. So the journey is for Nina, who is a type nine, get it? Nine, Nina, <laughs> um, who has to make a very, very difficult decision. The book is Nina and the really, really tough decision. And so she has to make this really tough decision and she doesn't know how to do it. So she takes a journey and we find out about each of her eight other friends. And each of these eight friends has a different way of approaching decision-making or approaching the world to make a decision. So she understands this this diversity of perspective of of approaching the world and the value that each person brings to the decision-making process. And then at the end, integrates all nine of them into her her story and her being so that she can make this really, really difficult
1: decision. Oh, that's beautiful. That is, the book again is Nina and the Really, Really Tough Decision. Yes. All right, excellent. We've got Nina and the Really, Really Tough Decision. We've got the how and why taking care of business with the Enneagram and you are Carl Hebenstreit, PhD. Where do we connect with you, Carl? Well, you can always connect with me
0: on LinkedIn. And I also have a website, which is www.performandfunction, spelled out. The A-M-D is spelled out. It's not an ampersand. And uh, yeah, so my email is carl at So those are all easy ways to get in touch with me. Check out the book. There's links to it from the website as well. And I am hoping to be able to, to get the Enneagram into all organizations to help them achieve the great results that I've seen in the clients that
1: I've worked with so far. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of that with us. I am going to order my copy of. Obviously, I already have a version of the How and Why, but I'm going to order my copy of Nina and the Really Really Tough Decision as soon as we get done recording. So you've got at least one more sale going there, and I sure hope some other folks will check that out. Thank uh, you, David. I, absolutely, my pleasure. So, all right, we have. Uh, I think we've got about two or three minutes left, just enough for one more, one more quick exploration here. Um, Gosh where shall we go? How about we've talked about conflict management, we've talked about strategic planning. we've talked about the integration in um, teams and product and service development. What about and communication? Communication is really important. It's funny. that's exactly where I was going to go because so much of leadership is communication. so yes. yeah, where would you where would you take us? So communication
0: is really critical, especially in change management. and just as when we talked about making sure that we're including language and and the considerations and the needs of all of the nine different types in our performance management and our rewards and recognition systems and all that, we also need to make sure that when we're communicating that we're addressing the needs of each of the nine types in the workforce. So especially during change management and, and making all these difficult communications that need to go out, If we really focus on each of the nine different types, they can give us a great guideline into what the communication needs to say. So for example, let's let's go through all nine of them. For the type one, why is this the right thing to do? How does this relate to our mission, our vision, our values, right? So what is the connection there? We start off with the why. So that's the type one. The two, how is it gonna affect our, our relationships, both of our internal relationships to our teams, our leaders, but also to our stakeholders. How are our stakeholders going to be impacted by this decision? How is this going to be better for them? How's this going to be a better service? Whatever it is. Three, how does it impact our goals? How is this relevant to our achievement of our goals? Right. Type three is very interested in the goals. Four, how is this going to be an enabler to, to keep us in our niche market, or to be different and differentiate ourselves from others, how will this help us in that journey? For five, what's the what's the the logic? What's the the evidence? What are the statistics? What is the the reasoning behind it? That's that's the financial decisions or or the numbers that could benefit us in in doing this. Whatever it is. Six is what have we put in place for contingency plans in case this isn't exactly what we thought it would be? So, what else, what other plans do we have in, in as backup plans? Seven is what options is this going to open up for us? How is this going to be better for us to be able to move into different areas, into other industries, into other segments, into other markets, whatever it is? Eight is how are we going to execute on this? What is the plan for execution to make sure that this happens in, a, in the correct way and in, in the best way possible? And nine is how does this all fit within the whole model, within the whole um, structure of our organization? How does the rest of the organization impacted? How, how does this all really align with our system? So if we just answer those nine questions or take those nine points into consideration in all of our communications, whether it's for change management or anything, we will hit and address each of any of our employees' immediate concerns and needs.
1: Holy cow. That was a masterclass in about two minutes. <laughs> oh, that was incredible. So listeners, boy, I, I, I'm I going to have to re-listen to that one again. Those nine questions, the why, how does it affect our relationships? How does it impact our goals? How do we enable or how does it uh, enable us in our niche or differentiate us? What's the logic, the evidence? What contingencies are we talking about? Um how will we oh gosh i'm got to go my notes get scribbly because i was trying to keep up with it and how does it fit in our number 9 was how does it fit into the whole model so there's a few more in there uh yeah. brilliant brilliant if we can answer all of those questions anything that we're doing how much stronger is our team our leadership and our work going to be i mean just every aspect of what we're doing is leaders
0: Thank you, David. Yeah, the, it's all about the clarity there. It's really creating that clarity, making sure that everyone's needs are met and they understand which direction we're going and, and
1: why, why are we doing this? Uh, thank you so much for sharing that with us. That is a perfect way to wrap up our episode today. Uh, Carl, it's been a real pleasure talking with you and, uh, and learning more about the Enneagram and all the different applications and so forth. Uh, certainly uh, an aspect of uh, you know, been familiar with the Enneagram from a distance for a while. So it really has been a treat to get to learn more and about how that can help me be a better leader as well as everyone listening.
0: Thank you, David. You are no longer just skirting on the outskirts of the uh, Enneagram. You are immersed.
1: <laughs> this is a good immersion and and uh, with an incredible practical application as we wrapped up there. So listeners I encourage you uh, get familiar with the Enneagram. Uh, look at those nine questions, in addition to all of the other tips and suggestions Carl shared with us, but take these nine questions and regularly, consistently ask them about the decisions you're making, the communications that you're, you're putting out, um, the interactions you're having with your team, and all of those different aspects, and be the leader you'd want your boss to be.